to the new Retina Radio Journal Club with VBS. My name is Christina Wang. I'm on faculty at the Baylor College of Medicine, and it is a true privilege to be serving as the moderator for today's discussion. We've chosen two great papers, and I would like to take a moment to introduce my esteemed panelists. First, we have Dr. Brian Doe from the Retina Group of Washington. Hey, Brian. Nice to see everybody. Thanks for having me. And then Dr. Murnali Gupta from Retina Associates of Orange County. Hi, Murnali. Hi, Christina. Looking forward to the discussion. And last but not least, Dr. Demetra Skandra on faculty at the University of Chicago. Hey, Demetra. Hi, Christina and the rest of the group. Looking forward to our fun chat. So for those of you who might be tuning in for the first time to New Retina Radio Journal Club, this is a really fun way to discuss some of the latest high impact papers that have been published. And again, it's a very special edition because it's not every day you have one of the lead authors involved as a panelist on the paper that we're gonna talk about. And so the first paper we're gonna to discuss today, Dimitra Skanda is the, Skandra is the senior author for. This is a paper by Jared Sokol and colleagues on medical treatment for macular holes. And so it's called Macular Hole Closure with Medical Treatment. It was published just a few months ago in Ophthalmology Retina. And then Brian Doe is gonna cover a very similar paper. It's called Treatment of Secondary Full Thickness Macular Holes with Topical Therapy that was published last year also in ophthalmology retina. So I'm gonna kick things off to Demetra first to give us a summary of her paper and her work. Thank you, Christina. And thanks for the opportunity to present uh, our work. Uh, it easily took um, a lot of people to put this together. And I think it's an interesting paper and hopefully you will enjoy the discussion. So our paper is basically a multi-center retrospective observational case series of 14 patients that all underwent successful topical medical treatment with, uh, for false thickness macular holes. And the, the treatment involved all of them with uh, what we call the triple therapy. So they had a steroid drop. Most of them was a prednisolone acetate uh, every three, uh, three to four times a day, or um, diflopredinate, uh, durazole uh, every two, uh, two or two times a day. They also, all of them uh, received the treatment with an osteroidal inflammatory drop, most of them a ketorolac, uh, but some of them also got bronfenac, and also all of them were treated with carbonic anhydrase inhibitor, uh, most of them rizolamide, and a good amount with rizolamide two to three times a day. So the mean age of our patients was what we expect for a macular hole uh, um, cohort of about six to seven years of age. And actually these seem to be small holes. So again, I repeat, these are holes that all hit successful closure with the drops. Uh, and the mean size was about 166 uh, micrometers uh, plus minus um, 15 micrometers with the range up to um, upper 200 microns. All eyes had the systoid macular edema or macular systoid hydration on OCT and half of them had previous vitrectomy, while half of them were actually diopathic macular holes. They never had a vitrectomy before. So what we saw when we put these patients in this regimen, and then we watched them closely for a few weeks, is that within two to four weeks, um, the majority of the patients uh, uh, presented with an improvement in the CME and uh, some changes in the, hole, the size of the hole. But first, it was like the changes that we noticed in the CME surrounding the hole in the OCT. And then from a range from two to eight weeks with a uh, mid duration of 5.6 weeks, the hole closed in most of the eyes uh, and the vision improved. The treatment duration really varied. So we had a couple of patients that kind of lost follow-up. So uh, it's hard to tell exactly when the hole closed because um, they did not come as expected. But overall, there was a range from three and a half months up to 20 months of, of uh, duration. And I think part of the range is because this was a multi-center study. So each of us did not have a, a standardized way of how we taper the drops. 
and um, we kind of did a different kind of taper uh, per patient and also per physician involved. Uh, the vision acuity uh, at presentation was at mean at 2070 and it improved to 2040, which was uh, very statistically significant. Regarding uh, some uh, adverse events or safety, um, in two of the patients, the macular hole opened again after the patients were wind of the drops in about six months or more. And actually in, um, in one of them, uh, they closed again with drops and two patients develop a uh, worsening of the ERM and have the govitrectomy for uh, ERM and membrane peel uh, that caused the persistent macular edema and persistent hole. Uh, we likely did not have a lot of issues with the pressure. Some patients could develop some mild ocular hypertension that responded very nice to topical therapy and actually um, was uh, not persistent after the stopping of the steroid drop. So in conclusion, it seems that um, full thickness macular holes uh, in a small size, uh, probably around 150 to 200 micrometers, may benefit from a dropped regimen um, in this case. And this could be eyes that either have retraction before or idiopathic macular holes, and they had systolic hydration, no vitromacular traction, and they can have a little bit of a mild DRM, but without significant tractional component. The mechanism is not really known, cannot tell, but the speculation is that the drop treatments may increase the fluid absorption uh, via the RP pump. Thanks for that terrific overview, Demetra, and great work. I'm going to now pass things over to Brian, who's going to talk through the second paper by Niffenager and colleagues. Brian. So uh, the paper that I'm going to discuss was also a retrospective case series. It was written by Niffenager and uh, colleagues. Um, similarly, a small number of cases. Uh, they looked at nine eyes with uh, full thickness macular holes in eight patients that uh, received topical therapy. Uh, interestingly, they sort of uh, differentiated between secondary and primary macular holes. Um, secondary, um, you know, they referred to as folks uh, who seem to have developed macular holes for reasons other than the typical mechanism um, of anteroposterior vitreofoveal traction. Um, so in terms of treatment, all eyes uh, received diflupredinate drops topically. Um, six of the nine eyes also received topical carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. Um, two eyes were prescribed NSAIDs, uh, one of whom experienced elevated IOP and keratopathy, IOP presumably due to the diflupredinate and keratopathy due to the NSAID, um, but all that seemed to get better when they sort of pulled back on the drops a bit. Um, among the nine eyes, uh, six patients uh, had prior retinal detachment, uh, three of which had been treated with scleral buckle, one with uh, uh, vitrectomy, one with pneumatic retinopexy, and one with uh, barrier laser. Um, three of them had previous uh, vitrectomy, uh, one for retinal detachment, uh, which we discussed in the group of six um, RD patients, two for epiretinal membrane. And um, there was one remaining patient who had a history of vitreomacular traction and a history of blunt trauma. Um, at the time of initial diagnosis, all uh, nine eyes had some element of epiretinal membrane and cystoid macular edema. So the average initial uh, macular hole diameter was about 80 microns, um, ranging from anywhere uh, from 44 microns to 132. Um, average follow-up for these eyes was about 53 weeks. And amongst uh, the nine eyes that were uh, discussed in the paper, eight achieved successful hole closure. Uh, CME resolution and improved visual acuity after a mean of six weeks. Um, average visual acuity uh, prior to treatment was 2100 and improved to a mean of 2050 at the end of uh, the treatment period. Uh, interestingly, uh, one eye experienced whole reopening upon discontinuation of treatment during the follow-up period, 
uh, but the hole closed once treatment was uh, reinitiated. Great. Well, thank you so much for that terrific summary, Brian. And we're going to just ask Murnali for some impressions of both of these papers to start off with. You know, I think all of us here love doing surgery. We love being in the OR, but can all agree as well that all else being equal, a medical treatment is always preferred over taking somebody to the OR, especially over the past year and a half with the pandemic where there's been more limited OR time. So it's neat to think about treating what's classically been a surgical disease with potentially a medical treatment. Murnali, what were your initial reactions to the paper? Do you think this is a real effect that we're seeing, or do you think some of these macular holes may have closed spontaneously on their own, even without drops? Uh, great summaries, uh, Dr. Skandra and, and Dr. Doe. I think that um, the, the paper is very interesting to me for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that there we've seen case reports here and there of these holes closing with medical therapy, but I think these two are some of, the, although small, some of the larger retrospective series of uh, medical topical therapy for um, full thickness macular holes. Um, the take home points that I, I noted were that these are very small holes. They all tended to have cystic changes, of course, at the edges of the holes and uh, no obvious tractional components. I think it drives home the point that macular holes are, are more complex than we may have previously understood. It's not just a mechanical tractional thing happening, but some of these eyes may have a tractional component. Some of them may have a hydration related process going on and dehydrating the edges of, of the retina and getting the cystic plate spaces out uh, might help close these. Some may have a combination. A lot of these uh, in the paper that Dr. Doe summarized, they were all secondary uh, macular holes. And uh, I think half of the ones in Dr. Skondra's paper were secondary. So they may have already had at least the hyaloidal traction removed during the vitrectomy, a lot, a lot of these. And some may have also had ILM removed during the ELM peel or prior MAC hole surgery and things like that. So um, something I would think about even more so in a secondary MAC, a small secondary macular hole with cystic changes. Um, but as you know, some of these holes, they're very small holes, might have closed on their own. And so it would be interesting to see some prospective studies comparing these two regimens, even if it's, uh, you know, scheduling patients out for surgery two months from now and watching what happens in, in the treatment group uh, while you wait surgery. And if, it, if they don't close, take, take them to the OR anyways. Yeah, great points, Renali. Thanks for sharing. Demetra, I'm going to ask you, you know, Brian Doe gave a great summary of the Niffenager paper. Do you feel like that paper corroborates what you and your group found? Are there any distinctions between the papers that you want to point out? Thank you, Christina. And uh, I agree, uh, Brian did a great uh, job presenting um, the other macular hole paper. I think it's very encouraging that um, two separate studies from two different groups uh, kind of uh, addressed and presented the results. And actually the results were kind of similar in the sense it was small holes with macular edema. The mid duration was uh, about five point something weeks in both studies. And uh, there was a range. There are some small differences. Um, I mean, the, the paper that Brian presenting were all secondary holes that they already have a retinopathology. Uh, not all of them with vitrectomy that the high load is removed. Uh, while in our case, uh, half the eyes were idiopathic macular holes without previous surgery, without uh, vitrectomy, and half of them were secondary that potentially there may be a more prominent inflammatory component. Um, 
Uh, another thing that I would, uh, I would like to make a note about this is like the size of the holes in our study was slightly bigger, which I think is encouraging that it doesn't have to be a super, super tiny hole to be responsive. Uh, the average size is double than what they found in their study. And actually in our case series, some of the holes were like in the mid to upper 200s. Um, and uh, also in our study, we always use the tree drops. Uh, Maybe it's not needed because they had very good outcomes just with one, uh, sometimes two or sometimes three. But for that, definitely we need to do more prospective studies. Uh, but I think the fact that um, idiopathic small holes closed, these, I think that's the ones that were like, cannot tell for sure that it was continuous. Uh, and that's why we need prospective studies. But I agree with Prinali that, uh, uh, and I do it now uh, that now that I've seen what are the what I call the characteristics of potentially good candidates. Uh, for me, that was the main point of publishing the study. Uh, obviously, it's not the proof, but um, it's kind of like, OK, if someone's going to be a candidate, it's more likely it's going to be these characteristics to identify uh, good candidates going forward, either for a prospective study or from a clinical practice. So so everybody with a small hole. I have a very honest conversation with them that this source out of care uh, that will, you know, it may delay the treatment for a few weeks. Uh, and within uh, six weeks, you have an idea if there's no response. And uh, so far, those that have not responded and I took them to surgery, they all had excellent outcomes. So I don't think that uh, we really detriment the outcome by delaying a few weeks for macular hold cases. Um, and uh, just from since the paper was published and that I have several cases now that uh, kind of like more proven that the drops doing something that the holes opened up when we went off the drops and then I put them back on the drops and they closed again and then they opened up again and then I closed them again with drops. So, you know, the fact that whenever you stop the treatment, it, um, it kind of like goes away. And some of them are actually idiopathic which is to me very surprising that it's uh, not so clear post-operative uh, late onset edema. But I think we definitely, it's worth as a community to put forward a prospective study targeted at these potential good candidates. Great comments, guys. Looking forward to a more in-depth discussion on both papers right after this quick break. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the new Retina Radio Journal Club with BBS. I'm Christina Wang, and I am delighted to be joined here tonight by Dr. Brian Doe, Dr. Murnali Gupta, and Dr. Dimitra Skandra. Thanks for sticking with us. We're now gonna move our discussion towards a more clinical relevance focus to the two papers that we discussed earlier. So I'm gonna start off with asking Brian, you know, as has already been mentioned several times, these holes were small. They were on average 166 microns in Demetra's paper and actually not even 80 microns in the Niffenager paper that you so eloquently summarized. And half in Demetra's series actually had a prior pars plane of vitrectomy for either a retinal detachment or a full thickness macular hole previously. So that changes sort of how you may contextualize the results. Do you think, Brian, that the fact that the hyloid and ILM, which have already been removed in a lot of these cases, helps to facilitate and maybe um, increase that level of success with topical drops. What do you think about that? Um, I suspect so. Uh, I'll just comment that, um, you know, at least in the Niffenegger paper specifically, I uh, didn't necessarily comment on the, the status of the hyaloid uh, in terms of attachment uh, at the macula or fovea. Um, and I think that's especially important when you're looking at cases like, you know, ones that have undergone scleral buckling without vitrectomy. Um, in which case, I, I don't think of the mechanism as very different from what we traditionally think of in, in idiopathic macular holes. Um, that being said, from a theoretical standpoint, I think removing the vitreous probably does something to the ability of these medications to concentrate within the vitreous cavity and the concentrations of these medications just directly overlying the macula. There might be some impedance to the medications making their way back there um, in an eye that, that still has its native vitreous. 
And an eye that's had its ILM removed, uh, theoretically, there should be much less uh, tangential traction, sort of holding the edges of the hole open. And so, you know, if, if you have that combination of, you know, potentially a greater dehydration of the sort of perihole macula, um, as well as, um, you know, less tangential traction, I think there's potential for success. Yeah, that's a great point. I really like how you highlighted the fact that the proposed mechanism of using a carbonic anhydrous inhibitor is the dehydration component, which is interesting because we saw that a lot of these holes indeed had a presence of cystoid macular edema. I'm curious, throwing it out to the group, who's tried this? Obviously, Demetra has, but Renali, Brian, have you done this in your own practice? And what specific characteristics are you generally looking for in a patient with a macular hole who you'd be willing to try this on? Um, I, I have tried it on a few patients. One of them closed uh, and we were able to cancel surgery. Typically I book the surgery and I start the drops and I see them and tell them if it doesn't work, we already have something on the schedule. And if it does, we'll cancel the surgery. And one of those patients ended up closing uh, and remained closed afterwards. I think just as the study suggests, smaller holes um, and holes where you see cystic changes and you don't see the hyaloid creating a lot of VMT or a big ERM contributing to the macular hole are more likely the ones that, that might benefit from this sort of approach. How about you, Brian? So I know Demetra was hoping that we'd all have some, some cases to contribute to, to future series. Um, and I'll admit that I, I have tried it in a handful of patients. Um, I don't think I can recall a, a case while in practice of a macular hole any smaller than 300 microns. Um, so similarly to Manali, I'll, I'll book patients out for maybe six weeks, depending on um, how long they, they feel like waiting. Um, you know, I, I oftentimes have patients who don't necessarily want to jump into surgery directly and uh, don't mind the idea of trying something less invasive first, um, but unfortunately have not had any success personally. Right. Well, is that about 300? I'm not surprised. <laughs> So Demetra, I, <laughs> I wanted to ask, you know, so I, I've had one case personally that I offered. It was a patient with a small full thickness macular hole, less than 250 microns. And we had actually signed him up for surgery. And I said, you know what, we can just try this. I actually printed out the abstract of your uh, last paper and gave it to him as well. And said, you know, in the meantime, why don't we give this a try? I'll see you back in a few weeks and we'll go from there. And obviously we will continue working on the scheduling of your surgery in case it, it doesn't work and you still need to proceed. And he was very pleasantly surprised. I was very pleasantly surprised that in that case, the patient did close and we avoided a surgery altogether. So it's great to have that option. I think we probably need to learn more about specific specifically what characteristics are going to optimize the chance of success in patients treated this way. But I wanted to ask you, you know, one thing I was troubled with in that patient is once that hole closes, how do you go about the taper? Do you taper right away? Do you kind of draw it out for a little longer? You referred to this a little bit in your summary in that some yeah. holes reopen and then have to be closed again with, yeah. with the drops. Talk about so, that. So this is something, you know, obviously there's no answer and it's kind of like an instinct and you go by case by case, but usually typically I keep them uh, in all three drops until I see a resolution of, this, of the edema. And once I see resolution of the edema, unless I have like any very high pressure that does respond to drops, which I have not really seen. If I see a pressure spike, I add a, a drop or two because I know eventually I'm going to taper them off. Uh, and once I see the edema resolve, then, and sometimes you see this like persistence of retinal fluid, that can take a long time to go away. So if they don't have a pressure issue, I'll keep them on all three drops until the little subretinal fluid goes away. If they start having pressure issues, I'll cut down on the steroid um, 
and keep one of the two. And let's say all the fluid is gone, all the, the hole is closed. Uh, then I try to taper one by one because we don't know yet which of all the three drops actually is important. And maybe some cases more of the azote because they want more of the thumping effect. In some cases, it be more the uh, inflammatory component, especially the secondary holes. So the steroid or the ketorolac are more important. So I start always the steroid first because it can give the pressure issue. So I'm more comfortable having people on the NSAIDs and azote for months rather than being a steroid for months. And then uh, I do like a slow taper uh, every couple of weeks. And then I watch very closely if i see the swelling come back or i see the hole about to open again i may put it back on and maybe try to taper another drop so it's really uh how the patient responds but i don't drop all of them at the same time i do a slow taper i start with a steroid and i start the taper after i see the swelling be gone um, and most of the subretinal fluid to be gone Another caveat I want to say is that, yes, most holes close on, on a mid-duration about 5.6, but there are some holes that actually they, it would take like eight or 10 weeks to close. And I think the mistake I've seen um, in some patients that came to me and they already got surgery and they, wanna, they asked me to look at their scans is that they already had an improvement. Like if you look at the serial OCPs, you'll see the swelling get better. Uh, you see the cyst getting smaller and uh, even the hole of the size getting smaller. So just because the hole is not closed in four or five weeks doesn't mean it won't close. If there's no change in four to six weeks, I rarely see improvement afterwards. But if you see less edema, subvision of the improvement, the whole diameter, uh, the whole size may or may not close, uh, I think it's still giving it a few more weeks uh, and just always have like a date so we don't delay the definite treatment. But OCT and geography and fast is a great also tool to get an edema, uh, how the uh, how the cysts respond because with sections it's hard to always tell but when you go to these unfast pictures on the OCTA and you can see actually the cysts you can get an idea that the cysts getting smaller you get less cysts uh, even though overall the whole looks about the same. Yeah great summary and so just to kind of recap for the audience a slow staggered taper perhaps when the hole closes and also don't be too impatient and jump into the OR too quickly you might need up to eight to ten weeks with these topicals before proceeding with vitrectomy. I think those are great insights. Renale I want to ask you a little bit you know usually when we talk about medical therapies we don't get as nervous about safety issues especially in drops that have been well established and part of the regimen for a lot of different diseases but are there any concerns about the keratopathy that can happen with NSAIDs, which were used in, in a lot of these regimens, or the elevated intraocular pressure that can happen with topical steroids? Talk about the safety issues for a moment. Uh, great question. I think that, um, you know, as we all know, every intervention, not doing anything, drops, injections, surgery, they all have risks. I think in general, I would consider the risks of the drops to be far less than the risks of surgery especially because the PRED component, I'm going to give them anyways for at least a short period of time after surgery. But yes, of course, the steroids can cause a steroid response. I find that that almost always responds really well to topical agents and you can taper the steroids off. Um, keratopathy is a concern in NSAIDs, also generally uh, reverses pretty well. You might need to you know, put plugs in or do more in some cases, but generally reverses well in these in eyes with NSAID-related keratopathy, unless there's something else going on like PUK or something like that that causes a melt, which of course you would know beforehand. Um, so overall, I think it's far safer than surgery. The other thing I do wonder about though is that is the if you wait eight or 10 weeks and they don't close and then you schedule the surgery, is that delay gonna impact their outcome? Or in these eyes where you close the hole and then you taper the drops and it opens back up and then you close it and you, is that opening and closing and that protracted 
process impact outcomes, I think the prospective trials will be helpful in understanding that a little better. I thought about that exact same point, and I almost equate it to a, like a pneumatic, right? That you might perform before taking a patient for surgery with for, with for retinal detachment. You know, you want to know if a failure or delay in care has any sort of negative impact on ultimate visual acuity. I think that's a fabulous question, Brian. I'm going to give you the last word here. You know, thinking about the limitations of these two case series, what other data would you want to see when it comes to using topical therapy for full thickness macular hole? What would help make this more convincing? Um, I mean, I think we've, we've talked about it already, but seeing some prospective data in macular holes of, of various sizes, you know, maybe even stretching outside of these smaller macular holes, um, I don't see why, you know, it wouldn't be possible for some slightly larger holes to close as well with pharmacotherapy. Um, you know, we've talked as well about the, the, the likelihood that, you know, these holes might have closed with conservative observation in, in the absence of treatment. Um, I, don't, I don't know the exact numbers myself, you know, but maybe, you know, the, the holes that fall within these size ranges make up, you know, four to 11% of macular holes at large, which could mean that, you know, many of them would have closed um, on their own without treatment. But um, again, I think as with anything else, um, you know, prospective data would be helpful. Uh, what's convincing to me is, you know, the few cases sort of aggregately from the two papers that reopened um, upon discontinuation of treatment and then closed again once treatment was in initiated. So certainly there's some merit to, um, at least I think there is, um, th this type of treatment. We just have to see whether or not it's applicable um, to a larger population. Yeah, absolutely. Well, really interesting paper. Congrats again to Demetra and her colleagues for this excellent work and look forward to seeing more data in the future. I want to take a moment as we wrap up to thank Drs. Murnali Gupta, Dimitra Skandra and Brian Doe for their excellent insights on today's Journal Club. It's always fun chatting amongst friends. And thanks to all of you who are listening and tuning in to New Retina Radio Journal Club with VBS. We hope that you learned something new today. And don't forget to stay tuned for future episodes.